Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. Hi, this is Graham Rowett. Are you in the mood for something scary? Well, you're in the right place. This is the Wicked Library. Warning. The Wicked Library is a horror fiction podcast created for a mature audience. Our stories contain graphic descriptions of pain, murder, violence, blood, betrayal, and inhumanity. Monsters win, people die, and hope is often shattered. There is also beauty, heart, catharsis, and raw emotion. What triggers fear may be deeply personal, but we all share it. If at any time a story takes you to a place too dark, turn on the lights, press pause, or press stop. And always remember that unlike in the real world, these nightmares and your participation are under your control. Hello, and welcome to The Darkness In Between, the last episode of our interseasonal entertainment while we were working on Season 11. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. Coming up in just a few weeks, this October, we'll be launching Season 11, a season of sci-fi-themed horror that we're excited to launch. In addition to featuring new and returning authors and voice actors, this season I'm excited to hand over the mic to a number of guest hosts. Some you'll recognize as longtime contributors to the show, and some are new to our Wicked Halls. Follow us at Wicked Library on Twitter for more details. A big thank you to those who took the time to rate the show five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your reviews help others find the show, and of course, we always love hearing from you. A sincere thank you to those of you who are supporting the show. Without you, the show would not be possible. Our authors and everyone else involved in making the show Thank you for your support of this show and of independent horror fiction. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. For as little as $3 a month, you can help make the show you love possible and get fun rewards. A lot of hard work and money goes into making the Wicked Library, and we really do rely on this support to help us pay the authors, voice actors, composer, and artists. We believe all our contributors deserve to be paid for their work, and your support helps make that possible. In addition to knowing that you're a part of making this show possible, you also get rewards like ad-free episodes at higher bit rates, access to bonus stories, and at higher levels of support, even more. You can support us at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. Lastly, if you don't know already, we post a weekly book review and recommendation column to thewickedlibrary.com. The column is called Fully Booked with Brianna Morgan. And in line with our mission, you'll find reviews with a strong focus on indie and small press horror fiction. Head to thewickedlibrary.com forward slash booked to check them out and watch our Twitter feed at Wicked Library for notices when new reviews post each week. Today's dark tale, My Last Skinwalker by Carolyn A. Drake, is told by Graham Rowett.
The landline blares and jolts me from sleep. I slap a hand over the receiver and bring it to my ear. Hello? I mumble. Miguel? Yeah? We've got one. Sleep flees. I spring up in bed. The alarm clock reads 2.03 a.m. The two deadbolts on the bedroom door are still fastened, and the three-inch-thick security glass of the nailed-shut window is intact. Where? Wilson Farm. Zeb's voice crackles through the old receiver. Vacant desert rushes by on the other end of the line, and then there's a burst of static. I figure Zeb's driving out of the dead zone near Petey's ranch. It got one of Tom's hands. Which one? Uh, Sam something? The art residency kid from town. All right. I swing my legs off the side of the mattress and plant my feet on the floor. I'm on my way. We're coming to you. I blink in surprise. You're bringing it here? It got itself cornered in Tom's delivery truck. The big one. It's trying to get out, and we didn't think it'd stay put till you got there. So kill it. I try to keep the fear from my voice. Petey stirs in the bed beside me. This is the last thing he needs. We're almost to Petey's place, Zeb says as though I haven't spoken. It's better with more of us. Me, Gene, and Tom are here, so you and Petey make five. Plus, you've got the gun. I run a hand over my eyes and rub the last of sleep from them. Fine, I concede. Park round back near the floodlight. We'll be there in ten. I put the receiver down. A warm, calloused hand brushes the bare skin of my back. Someone's got one. Petey's tired voice asks. Yeah. I stand and snatch my T-shirt from the floor, then begin rummaging in the dark for my jeans. Tom, Zeb, and Jean are on their way with it. Here? I wince at the ire in his voice. Petey always sounds pissed when he's scared. Why in glory's name are they bringing it here? Tell them to kill it where they found it. They trapped it in Tom's truck. I shimmy into my pants. They want the gun. Fuck them. I don't want it near our horses. They have a point with the gun. I make my way to the walk-in closet Petey's mom had his father install ten years ago before they passed. I slip inside and yank on the chain dangling near the exposed pipes by the doorway. A single naked bulb illuminates the cramped space. I crouch among old clothes and storage boxes in front of a small steel gun safe. I spin the dial, entering my father's birth date. The door swings open. It's safer than blades, and it'll be four against one. Thought you said it was Tom, Zeb, and Jean. Petey utters a weak cough, and I'm thankful my back is to him so he won't see my face fall. So it'll be five. Four, I correct. I remove the revolver from the safe. It was last used five months ago. I confirm the six chambers to be vacant and feed in four small silver bullets. They're all that's left from the original batch my father forged. I'll have to make more soon. You're staying put, partner. Like hell I am. Petey begins to rise from the bed, but I stand and cross the room before he sits up. I set the gun on the nightstand and swing one leg over the side of his thinning waist straddling him, trapping him under my weight. Three months ago, Petey could have hurled me across the room. He's got a good five inches on me and once possessed thirty pounds more muscle. But the chemo treatments have sapped his strength. Petey strains and struggles against me. 
but at length he gives up. He lets his arms fall to the mattress. He pants as though he's just bucked a hundred bales of hay. You're weak as a newborn calf, I say. Petey hates being reminded of his frailty, but I'm not letting him step foot out that door tonight. This thing gets loose. You're the one it's gunning for. Tom's old as sin and you're letting him help. I'm not shacked up with Tom, Mia Moore. Don't talk, sweet, I warn. It won't work. Petey turns his head and glares at the window. He's beating himself up again for getting sick. Doesn't matter how many times I tell him it's not his fault. Petey is a born and raised rancher's son, and hard labor is as much a part of his daily routine as breathing. Being a 25-year-old man trapped in a bed during the daylight hours, forced to feel his body weaken by the minute, is torture for him. I cut Petey's face and force him to look up at me. He meets my eyes in the semi-darkness, a somber sadness replacing the anger. Even with his sunken cheeks, Petey's strong jaw, straw-blonde hair, and dazzling blue eyes enrapture me. I'm no less in love with him now than the first time we kissed behind my family's silo when we were sixteen. I mean it, Pete. I say, stay here. I hate this, he whispers. Shame hangs heavy in his voice. It's not forever, I insist, not sure if that's a lie. You'll be back to being a pain in the ass in no time. But for now, lock yourself in and wait till I get back. Anyone knocks but don't talk. You know it's not human, so don't open the door. You take the knife. I point to the silver-plated buoy knife on the bedside table. And if anything gets in, you stab it in the heart, no matter whose face it's wearing. I should demote you to ranch hand. Petey smirks, sounding entertained by my orders. He looks like his old self for a second. You've gotten too big for your britches. You like it when I boss you around, boss. I flash a sultry smile. I hate flirty bullshit, but I'm willing to play it up if it keeps Petey's mind off the monsters hunting us, both the ones from the desert hills and the ones in his bones. Mmm. Petey slides his hands over my jean-clad thighs and squeezes. Then, however, his eyes fall on the clawed scars on my bare forearm, the ones I gained in my most recent encounter with the skinwalkers. His face falls. He runs the pad of his thumb over the raised marks. You watch yourself, Miguel Abeto, Petey says, his tone grave. Don't be a hero. Things go south, you get back in here and we wait it out together. See, si, senor. I give him a frisky wink. I lean forward and kiss Petey's clammy forehead. I try to ignore the sinking dread that creeps into my heart as I think of how fragile my strong cowboy has become. I grew up with legends of the skinwalkers. Everyone said they'd return someday, when their years-long hibernation cycle ended. By the time I was fifteen, they hadn't shown in two decades. People started whispering that maybe they were gone for good. But they were wrong. The first killing that started the newest spree of death was a fourteen-year-old girl named Penny Murray. We belonged to the same high school group, along with Petey, Zeb and a few other ranch kids. She'd been pretty, and I'd even considered asking her out. But then a skinwalker snatched Penny from her bed. Her parents heard her screams as she was dragged into the hills behind their farm. The next night, 
the Skinner returned wearing the girl's face. It brought its mate, and together both beasts killed the rest of Penny's family, except for the grandmother, who survived long enough to tell a neighbor what happened. They never found the bodies. Things continued like that ever since. Every few months, a cattle mutilation. Every few months, a murder. Every few years, a family massacre. But our small rancher community isn't helpless. There's no law enforcement in our unincorporated area, so we've built our own militia. We fight back. The older ranchers teach us what they learned from the last cycle, like how skinwalkers can imitate the form of any animal whose blood they've tasted, including humans. But they can't mimic human speech. Their eyes reflect electric light, like a mule deer's does in headlamps on a highway. There aren't many skinners left, maybe fewer than fifty, and they often hunt in pairs. Should a farmer kill one attacking his livestock, the other will return by itself the next night to return the favor. Many believe that these beasts mate for life. Most importantly, though, the old ranchers taught us what can kill the skinwalkers. Silver. Only a silver-plated blade or bullet will serve the monster death. I killed my first skinwalker six years ago, when I was nineteen. My father and I surprised two of them at night while they feasted on a dairy cow. One of the skinners wore the form of a local man who died in an attack six months prior. The other skinner was a wolf. The wolf skinner was massive, bigger than any horse we owned, but it was fast. My father fired six silver bullets at the wolf, and it dodged all but one, which struck its side. The man-skinner watched its partner collapse, and then set its red eyes on my father. It changed into the form of a wild boar, and charged my father before he could reload the gun. It pinned him to the ground, and gored him with its tusks. My father screamed. I jumped on top of the boar skinner and drove my silver-plated buoy knife through its back. Flesh sizzled upon contact with the silver. Steam rose up in a stinking cloud. The shifter shrieked and stumbled away on clumsy pig feet. Black blood wept from the wound. The creature then tipped over, and it didn't get back up. Its chest quit rising with my blade sticking out of its back. The wolf-skinner released a long, mournful howl. It lunged over the body of its fallen mate and sank its teeth into my father's neck. And then the wolf-skinner tore my father's throat out. It tossed my father's lifeless body aside and then started towards me. But it stopped. It panted and whined, and I saw bloody matted fur at its side where my father shot it. Blood gushed with every movement the creature made. The wolf-skinner's glowing red eyes moved to its fallen mate's body before meeting mine. We stared each other down over the two corpses. Then it fled into the hills, leaving a trail of blood in the dust. I buried my father, and then I waited up with his gun every night for a month until the bank evicted me from my family's farm. The wolf-skinner that killed my father never returned. The screen door slams behind me as Tom's delivery truck pulls up. I breathe in warm juniper and watch Tom's truck park between the barn and the house. I'm the only person in our community with a gun that kills the skinwalkers. I'm used to getting calls at odd hours asking for my assistance at one ranch or another. 
Over the six years since my father died, I've killed nine Skinners. The thing in the back of Tom's truck will be ten. Now don't think of me as some muscle head with a death wish. I hate being the person everyone turns to. I fear the things that haunt our community the same as everyone else, but my status as the local Van Helsing of skinwalkers has its perks. Utah isn't as intolerant as some might think, but there are still plenty who take it upon themselves to make life harsher for people like Petey and me, for no reason other than that's what they've been raised to think is right. But that isn't something Petey or I have to deal with. No one gives us side-eye when our supposed joint bachelorhood comes up in conversation with outsiders. People are respectful when we drive into town. No one boycotts doing business with our ranch. No one refuses to sell us cakes. We're treated as what we are. Two lifelong best friends, living in Petey's house and working his family's land. And that's just fine with Petey and me. If the cost of being left to our own business is me being stirred in the night every few months to put down a monster, that's a price I'm willing to pay. Tom hops out of the truck's cabin, his beer belly leading the way. His wife, Jean, follows with her graying hair in a braid and a machete in hand. The steel blade shines scarlet. I smile on seeing that. Jean is a tough old bird. Zeb climbs down from the truck last. Zeb's folks are commercial farmers with big connections, so he's never had to work his family's land like Petey and me. His boots are never sun-baked or dusty, and his hands are soft as peach skin. Jean approaches me and gives me a quick peck on the cheek. I shake Zeb and Tom's hands. Sorry to trouble you for this, Tom says. He hitches up his pants and glances at the truck's suicide doors. There's a faint rustling inside the metal container. We'd have done it ourselves, but with it in the truck, seemed best to have the gun. Did that Sam kid live? I ask. Or... Jean shakes her head. So? Zeb drawls. Where's Petey? Laid up with a summer flu. I lie. Petey forbade me to tell anyone about the cancer. His pride can't stomach being pitied. Zeb laughs, but it's biting. Lazy flop! Well, I say pleasantly, you can go see for yourself, but you might get sick on your clean boots, Zebby. Tom and Jean chuckle. Zeb shoots me a nasty look, but only wipes his running nose on the back of his hand and nods at the truck. So how you want to do this? Zeb grunts. I walk to the generator beside the house and flip the switch for the outdoor lights. The land behind the house floods with bright fluorescent light, illuminating everything to the start of the foothills beyond the property. I heft up a flashlight and position myself ten feet behind the truck. The interior is quiet, but I detect soft breathing from the other side of the door. The thing is listening. You said it's just the one? I ask. Right, Tom says. I frown. I haven't heard of a lone ranger in a long time. Zeb shrugs. Maybe there's not as many of them as there used to be. Jean says, You've killed your fair share, and I've heard others in the hills have killed some as well. Mayhap there's only a handful left. What form did it have? I ask. Sam's, Jean says. I heard him shouting in the barn. He likes, liked to paint in the loft. We told him to be inside before sundown, but he never believed us about the Skinners. Thought we were superstitious rednecks. 
Anyway, I heard him shouting and went out. Thing was standing naked over Sam's body, trying to take his clothes off. I guess to sneak its way inside. I eye the closed truck doors. You sure it's not Sam? It won't talk, Jean replies. And I saw its eyes in the light. It's one of them. I nod. That's proof enough for me. Two of you get a handle. I point to Zeb and Tom. When I say, pull. Gene, you man this. I hand her the flashlight. Get the beam on the doors. When they open, I'll fire. If I miss, though, be ready with your machete. Will do, Gene says. I turn to Zeb and Tom. You two got silver blades? Zeb waggles a hunting knife I doubt he's ever used, and Tom shows me a dagger that gleams in the fluorescent floodlight. Good. Tom and Zeb holster the blades on their belts and position themselves at opposite sides of the truck, each gripping the handle of their respective door. Jean points the flashlight at the seam where the truck doors meet, her machete ready in the other hand. I raise the gun and aim at the center of the beam of light. I'm about to give the order to open the doors, but I hesitate. The hairs on the back of my neck are prickling. Goose flesh erupts along the skin of my forearms. Something doesn't feel right. Most creatures behave erratically when cornered, bucking and screeching and thrashing against their constraints. This thing inside the back of the truck, though, hasn't made a sound, hasn't tried to escape. It's just standing near the doors, breathing loud enough for me to hear it, but making no other sounds or movements. I lower the gun. How'd you say this thing got in the truck? I ask. I sliced its arm in the barn, Jean says. It ran, and I chased it around the side of the house. It jumped into the back of the truck. Tom came out, and we shut the doors and locked it inside. My stomach sinks. Something about that story isn't sitting right. My nerves are suddenly electric. Why would it run into the truck? It's a dumb animal, that's why, Zeb snaps. Christ, who cares why it does anything? Just kill the fucker. My trigger finger twitches, but I don't raise the gun. I don't like this. There's something obvious that I'm not seeing. Something is wrong. You've got the gun, Miguel, Jean says gently, clearly sensing my unease. The Skinner has no weapons. It was naked when it ran in there and the truck was empty. I know, I reply, but I, I have a bad feeling. Well, Jean returns, we have to open the door sometime. We can't leave it alive. I turn her words over in my head. She's right. Even if I don't shoot the thing now, I'll have to open the doors eventually. It's my job, after all. I'm the guy with the gun. I raise the gun and aim at the closed truck doors. I nod to Zeb and Tom. They both heave, and with a metallic screech, the doors swing open. My breath catches in my chest. The shifter stands directly in front of the doors, as I knew it would. It's as close to us as it can be. But when Jean trains the beam of light on it, I don't see the red hair and freckles of the art student it murdered this evening. No. I see my father. My hands stiffen. Jean gasps beside me. Zeb and Tom are still behind the truck's doors, waiting for the shot, and haven't seen the shifter's form yet. The skinwalker's eyes glow in the light, 
A small bloody wound on its arm shines crimson, but my gaze slips down to its side. There, entrenched in my father's bronzed skin, is an old gunshot wound, the one my father gave the beast that killed him. My finger's on the trigger, but I look back up into my father's face and I can't pull it. I'm frozen. Shoot! Jean yells in my right ear. The sound jolts me to my senses. I aim the gun at the Skinner's chest, but I'm too late. My hesitation allows the monster wearing my father's face to leap from the truck. It soars through the air, and I watch in horror as my father's skin erupts with black fur. His nose elongates into a snout, and his hands become enormous clawed paws. When the shifter lands on Jean, it's in the form of an enormous wolf. The flashlight falls from Jean's hands and crashes against a rock. The light goes dark. Jean thrusts the machete forward, but she can't get the blade high enough to slice the beast. She screams as its claws dig into her. I swing the gun to my right and fire at the wolf, but the beast throws its weight into me. I'm knocked to the ground and my shot misses, hitting the generator behind the shifter instead. There's a spark, and we're plunged into darkness. There's no moon, only white pinpricks of stars above. Zeb and Tom holler. I hear them fumbling for their weapons. I can't locate the black-furred creature in the nightshade. I blink rapidly to force my eyes to adjust. Beside me, Jean's moans of pain ebb into silence. I scramble to my feet and raise the gun before me, aiming recklessly at nothing, searching in the obscurity for the skinwalker. I smell blood on it from Jean's wounds and hear its labored breaths circling us but it doesn't sound like it's in pain. It sounds... excited. A dark shadow lunges forward. I see it in the corner of my eye and fire, but it's wild and misses, hitting the side of the truck instead of the shifter. The wolf creature throws me down again. This time it whacks the gun from my hands. Tom releases a war cry and runs forward with his dagger raised. The wolf spins around and slices a colossal paw through the air. Blood spurts from Tom's chest. He cries out, falls backwards, and then the wolf is on him, snarling and ripping. Seconds later, Tom's shouts stop. Zeb's eyes are wide as he takes in what the creature does to Tom. He flees for the front of the truck. I'm still dazed on the ground and can do nothing as the wolf lifts its head and sniffs, then charges after Zeb. It rounds the back of the truck and leaps into the open driver's door of the cabin just as Zeb's shiny spurs disappear inside. I can't see what happens next, but I hear it. Monstrous snarls and Zeb's screams fill the air like a devil's chorus. I can't do a thing to save him. I shake my head to clear it. As soon as the thing is done with Zeb, I'm next. I desperately feel along the dirt for a weapon, any weapon, but I can't even locate Jean's machete. There's no light by which to search. Zeb's screams stop. The skinwalker no longer snarls. I'm dead. My fingers tremble. The stench of Jean and Tom's blood swarms my nostrils. I'm dead. There's nothing I can do now. It's going to kill me. It's going to eat me. It's going to tear out my throat just like it did to my father. It's going to... My fingers skitter across something metal and cold. 
The gun. I let out a manic laugh and seize the handle. I spring to my feet, pull back the hammer, and aim at the front of the truck. My breath heaves in and out of my lungs so fast that my chest burns. My hands jitter with adrenaline. I wait for my prey to emerge from the open driver door so I can put a silver-plated bullet between its eyes. But nothing comes. I keep my gun up and ready. I wait five, then ten minutes. Nothing. No movement. No sounds. I shoot glances all around me, expecting it to leap out from some hiding spot, but it never does. At last, I gather my courage. I stoop and snatch up the flashlight. The fall did something to it, and the beam flickers, but it's better than nothing. I take slow, quiet steps to my left, keeping the truck's cabin in my sights. I draw a deep breath, ready myself, and then leap sideways so that I'm directly in line with the open driver's door. I blindly fire one shot into the truck's cabin. I wait, keeping my gun up, but nothing erupts from the darkness at me. I lower the gun and direct the light into the cabin. There's only one body inside. Zeb's. His fancy boots are no longer clean. They're splattered with his own blood. But there is no wolf shifter. My father's face does not leer at me from over Zeb's corpse. The skinwalker's gone. Then I see something that sends my stomach plummeting. The passenger door to the truck's cabin is thrown open. The Skinner escaped without me noticing. I spin around, looking into the hills and the black openness around me. I've no way of knowing where the thing is. It could be anywhere. It could be lurking on the other side of the truck. It could be hiding behind the house. It could be... It could be in the house. True terror grips me. My gaze whirls to the screen door beside the busted generator. The door is ajar. Petey! I don't think. I race inside the house. My quivering flashlight beam falls on bloody paw prints smeared on the black and white tiles. They cross the kitchen floor. I run after them into the hallway and nearly sob when I round the corner and shine my light into the dark cavern. The paw prints lead straight to the closed bedroom door. My breath stutters, but I'm relieved to see that the door protecting Petey is still shut. It occurs to me that with all the noise outside, my headstrong partner might have broken his promise and opened the door to come help. Thank God he listened to me, for once. There's no monster in the hallway, but that doesn't mean it isn't hiding in one of the linen closets or the bathroom. Trembling, I make my way down the hall. The broken flashlight throws jerky shadows on the walls and floor. I walk with a gun raised before me but I keep my finger off the trigger. I need to be absolutely sure this time before I fire. I only have one bullet left. I need to plant it in this thing's heart. I make it down the hallway to the bedroom door and try to see if the paw prints went left towards the bathroom or right towards the closet. But they do neither. The paw prints end there, at the closed bedroom door and there are no return prints heading back down the hallway. Just in that moment, a sharp sound rockets through the door, louder than it should be if the door were truly closed. It is the sound of a ragged breath. My heartbeat falters.
I tuck the flashlight under my arm and gently press on the door. It swings open. My entire world shatters. It got in. It got to Petey. The door swings forward and reveals our darkened bedroom. The silver-plated bowie knife is on the ground. The blade is coated in blood. My head spins at the sight. I train the flashlight beam up into the darkness before me, but there's no movement within the room. The wolf skinner is not crouched there waiting to attack. Instead, I see Petey. He's in the bed where I left him. Blood covers his throat. He coughs, spraying scarlet into the air like a fountain. His fingers clench in and out of fists. I lunge forward and throw the gun and flashlight onto the bed. I clamp my hands over Petey's throat, trying to stem the bleeding. Petey's eyes are clenched shut, and tears stream from the corners. He opens his mouth, but nothing comes out. Nothing but a gurgling noise. Shh, baby, I babble, my voice high-pitched and nearing hysteria. Shh, it's okay, you're gonna be okay, I'll get help, you're gonna be okay. A thumping noise behind me. I turn and look. A whirlwind of fear and fury seizes me. In the doorway to the walk-in closet stands an obscured humanoid figure. It's struggling with something before it. I can't tell what the object is in the darkness, but I can't think on it. Petey's blood is on my hands. Petey's gasping breaths fill my ears. Petey's body trembles in my arms, hurtling into a death throw. A shattered scream, bursting with rage, erupts from my throat. I lift the gun and fire. The recoil of the revolver reverberates down my arm. The sound of the gun going off in such a confined space ruptures my eardrums. The scent of sulfur swarms my nostrils, mingling with the iron stench of Petey's lifeblood. The gun is finally empty. I lower my arm. The dark, man-shaped form in the closet stops moving. But it does not fall. It remains standing. And then the creature in the closet utters a muffled human moan. My blood turns to ice in my veins. I fumble along the comforter on our bed until my hands find the flashlight. Everything in me screams not to cast the light onto the closet. I suddenly understand that I will not like what I see. But I do lift the flashlight. The broken bulb creates a strobe effect, and I take in the horror of what I've done in brief, brilliant flashes. The figure is not the skinwalker. It is Petey. He hangs limp from a noose slung over a pipe in the closet. His hands are tied in front of him with a belt. He's been gagged with one of my father's old ties. A bloody chunk has been bitten out of his left shoulder. The bullet hole in his naked chest gushes blood. I drop the now useless gun. I race forward and untie the noose. I get him free, and his dead weight drags me down to the floor. I place a hand over the wound, but there's no use. We are already engulfed in a steaming puddle of Petey's blood. There's no putting it back in. I hold him. I remove the gag from his mouth and whisper apologies. Petey never replies. His face is ashen in the dancing light. His glazed eyes meet mine 
one final time. Then they lose focus and roll into the back of his head. I hug him and wail. I don't know when I become aware of the presence standing before me. It is mere inches away, but it does nothing. It watches as I clutch my lover's corpse and scream. At last, exhausted and numb, I look up at the skinwalker. It still wears Petey's form. The gunshot wound my father gave it is a healed scar etched into the skin above Petey's ribs. A new wound steams and trickles blood on its other side. Must be where Petey stabbed it. That'll scar, too. How long will this thing go on living with the scars my dead family has given it? The skinwalker meets my tearing eyes with its own reflective gaze. The orbs in its eye sockets flicker red in the unsteady electric light. Once the shifter knows it has my attention, it deliberately swipes a hand across its throat, revealing unmarred skin beneath someone else's blood. It tricked me. The realization resonates dully within my spent mind. The skinwalker and I stare at each other over Petey's dead body. We're repeating the scene from my family's farm six years earlier. This time, though, the skinwalker doesn't run away. It tracked me down after all this time, and it isn't leaving without what it came for. I know what it wants. I break my gaze from its merciless stare and look down at my love for the last time. I smooth Petey's hair from his face and kiss his forehead. His skin is no longer clammy. So long, cowboy, I whisper. I swallow. I sit up straight. I close my eyes. I picture Petey, not dead, no longer sick, but healthy, all cornflower blue eyes and golden hair, smiling the way he used to, waiting for me. And then I lift up my chin, expose my throat, and wait for the teeth. Today's author was Carolyn A. Drake, with her story, My Last Skinwalker, told by Graham Rowett. To find out more about today's author and voice actor, please visit thewickedlibrary.com and check out their bio page. Our lead editor and executive producer is Scarlett R. Alge. Our resident composer and executive producer is Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. Artwork for today's episode was created by Jeanette Andromeda, our creative director and executive producer. Our showrunner and producer is Daniel Foytek. That's me. The Wicked Library is created by Ninth Story Studios. All rights reserved. Happy birthday, Mitch.